0: All right, let's uh, begin with prayer. O oh Lord, our gracious God, uh, we call upon Your name on Your day through Your Son and by Your Spirit that You might reveal to us Your truth. Give us wisdom that we may understand the times in which we live, that we may understand Your works in history, that we may learn from the great deeds of faith and obedience in the past, but also that we would learn from those negative examples in church history where Your people hardened their hearts in rebellion against You. May we not be like our forefathers in those instances, but may we learn to walk in Your ways. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're picking up our lecture on New England's halfway covenant midway through the outline. Uh, Hopefully we'll finish our material from last time and then pivot into the next section uh, which is going to be entitled Halfway Covenant Mythology. So we're going to finish up our treatment of New England's halfway covenant and then pivot to halfway covenant mythology or uh, another title would be a historical analysis of the Federal Vision's halfway scholarship. But before we get to that point, we need to pick up where we left off. You'll notice that your lecture outline that we've distributed is fairly robust. It has all the material we looked at last time, plus all that we're seeking to consider at this time. So we're going to Just very briefly review and pick up where we had left off on um, outline point number five. We saw that the Westminster Assembly had articulated a very clear and consistent biblical doctrine of church membership and communion participation. The church, the visible church, includes uh, all who do profess the true religion and of their children. An adult baptism, we're told, in larger Catechism 165 would include an open and professed engagement to be holy and only the Lord. So that's telling us something about a profession of faith. It's an open and professed engagement to be holy or entirely and only the Lord's. And those who claim to make that profession, those who make that profession, but are found to be ignorant or scandalous must manifest their reformation, their repentance visibly to the elders. Otherwise, they'll be barred from the table. Larger Catechism 173. We saw Confession of Faith, chapter 26, section 2, spoke of saints by profession, those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. Uh, presumably here, the idea is they call upon Christ for salvation. And Catechism or Confession of Faith, chapter 14, section 2, says that the principal acts of saving faith that they're professing to have are accepting receiving and resting upon christ alone for justification sanctification and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace and so these are people who profess to have saving faith they may struggle with assurance we looked at chapter 18 of the confession true believers really struggle with assurance at times but somebody who professes the faith is not someone if you ask them are you converted is jesus your savior and they say no right do you entirely devote yourself to the lord do you call upon the name of the lord jesus and he's currently sanctifying you and they say no right so that so it implies that to some degree you're claiming to be a true christian the emphasis is on the object of your faith christ and his finished work But there's at least something of a seed of assurance, something of a claim to be a true Christian, if you're gonna be coming to the Lord's table. We saw that just a couple years after the Westminster Confession and Catechisms were ratified that on this continent in 1648, the New England Puritans led by John Cotton and Richard Mather adopted the Cambridge platform. They affirmed pretty much the entire Westminster Confession of Faith minus some typical American revisions on church government and civil magistrate type of stuff, chapter 25, chapter 30, chapter 31. But other than that, these are confessional Calvinists, pato baptists and they added in this Cambridge platform a form of Congregationalist church government and discipline which was highly influential among later Congregationalists like John Owen at the time of the Savoy Declaration, in 1658, ten years later. Now, in the Cambridge Platform, we saw that a credible profession of faith and repentance was required. Cambridge Platform 12, Section 3, quote, "...the weakest measure of faith is to be accepted in those that desire to be admitted into the church, because weak Christians, if sincere, have the substance of that faith, repentance, and holiness which is required in church members." and such have most need of the ordinances for their confirmation and growth in grace. The Lord Jesus would not quench the smoking flax, nor break the bruised reed, but gather the tender lambs in His arms and carry them gently in His bosom. Such charity and tenderness is to be used as the weakest Christian, if sincere, may not be excluded, nor be discouraged." severity of examination is to be avoided, end quote. So Cambridge Platform is saying you've got to profess to be a true Christian, profess your faith and repentance, but there shouldn't be a severe examination where church leaders, ministers, whoever's doing the examination, even sometimes the whole congregation would do it, but you're not to be suspicious and trying to unravel and, and destabilize what people are saying and, and call everything into question but, but a discerning examination, but not a severe examination. Even a weak Christian is a Christian and uh, is a person who should be coming to the Lord's table. More could be said there. Uh, they required this of their baptized children before they would commune at the Lord's table. And it's essentially what we do in our church. We saw that six years after the Cambridge platform was adopted, questions arose as to whether the children of baptized, non-professing non communing members may themselves receive baptism. So if someone was baptized as an infant but never professes their faith and repentance, they're not even showing the signs of a weak Christian. They're not even, as we'll see, not even claiming to be a converted believer. Uh, What about their children? There was a cultural incentive to have your children be baptized and be part of the society, part of this Christian civilization, part of this uh, visible church. So could these non-professing, non-communing adult members present their children for baptism? And this led to the Boston Synod of 1662, which, by the way, it's interesting. These are independent congregationalists, but when they get into hot water, they have to basically become Presbyterians to to get themselves out of the jam. Fascinating. But they had a number of meetings. Ministers got together, uh, and then eventually this synod. They decided that although these non-professing adults could not come to the Lord's table, as long as they were upstanding and they were not uh, engaged in scandalous living and they were able to at least affirm something of the covenant of baptism, of bringing their children up in the church and so on and so forth, they could have their children baptized. They couldn't come to the Lord's table, but the children of non-professing members could be baptized. That was their position. The opponents of the position Nicknamed it the halfway covenant because these people that wouldn't profess faith and repentance would profess this kind of halfway faith just to get their kids baptized. Now, there, there is precedent for this policy for different reasons in the Presbyterian tradition, and so we want to respect that as an intramural debate within the Scottish Presbyterian heritage, baptizing, let's say, the grandchild of a believer when the child of the believer. The the father of the grandchild is not a believer. These are important questions that unlock many other difficult questions, but obviously our church only baptizes the children of those who reaffirm their own covenant of communicant membership. We don't baptize the children of non-professing adults, so that's our position. We'd be happy to defend that biblically, but for now... We're focusing on the next step in response to the halfway covenant. Pretty soon, the Reverend Solomon Stoddard, minister at Northampton, there in New England in Connecticut, changed everything by pushing it even further to allow halfway covenanters to the Lord's table. People who he believed were unconverted. He explicitly says, as quoted by his grandson, Jonathan Edwards, he explicitly says, if the biblical requirements for communion were observed then most of the people at the table would be unconverted. And he had his reasons for that, but he wanted unconverted people at the table so they could be converted because he thought that he had been converted at the Lord's table, even midway through his own pastoral ministry. And because of that personal experience, and because you had all these halfway covenanters frolicking on the fringes, he said, let's bring them to the table and maybe they'll be converted just like I was. So you have stoddard taking the halfway covenant and pushing it further to a whole way covenant uh, with these halfway covenanters at the Lord's table. And he, again, he held it as a converting ordinance. In connection with that, we saw that the language of profession of faith was largely reinterpreted so that professing saving faith and repentance was replaced with at least the interpretation of the language of the profession was replaced with this idea that somebody is not claiming to be converted. They're just affirming biblical doctrine and agreeing not to cause a ruckus in the life of the church. Now, getting to point number five, Stoddard was succeeded at Northampton by his well-known grandson, the Reverend Jonathan Edwards, who initially tolerated Stoddard's communion policy for about 20 years, from 1727 to 1747. But eventually, upon implementing a Cambridge-style interview process in 1748. The congregation, uh, in response to Edwards taking that step, the congregation, which was no doubt filled with many of the unconverted halfway covenanters that his grandpa had let into the church, they voted him out of office. Uh, Once again, they became Presbyterian temporarily and had uh, a commission of ministers and church leaders from other locations to come, and Edwards lost by one vote, in the vote of that commission, and then the congregation overwhelmingly supported the verdict of the commission. Now, Edwards, during this controversy, sought to articulate his position because, just as is the case today, there was a lot of mythology, a lot of people slandering Edwards by saying that his position was uncharitable and that you know it was uh, this just this insurmountably high standard. To come to the Lord's table, I mean, you had to jump through all the hoops and steps of conversion, and it was just totally ridiculously unfair. And so Edwards art- articulated his position in a treatise of which the abridged title is An Humble Inquiry into the Qualifications for Communion in the Visible Church of Christ. He published this in 1649, but he was working on it and and engaging with this material for a number of years during the controversy. Uh, The unabridged title, by the way, is, An Humble Inquiry into the Rules of the Word of God Concerning the Qualifications Requisite to a Complete Standing and Full Communion in the Visible Christian Church. So Edwards is saying, what needs to be observable in a person before they can come to the Lord's Table? communion prerequisites, if you will. And let's look at some of the material that he came up with. First, quote, The main question, he writes, I would consider, is this. Whether according to the rules of Christ, any ought to be admitted to the communion and privileges of members of the visible church of Christ in complete standing, but such as are in profession and in the eye of the church's Christian judgment godly or gracious persons, end quote. So he's not dealing with any other status other than whether you can come to the Lord's table, whether you have full communicant privileges. He's not dealing with the prerequisites for church office. He's not dealing even with the question of uh, whose children should be baptized. He's focusing his attention on who should be coming to the Lord's table. And he says that It should be only those that are in profession and in the eye of the church's Christian judgment, godly or gracious person. So people who claim to be true believers and people that the elders or whoever in this context, but for us it's elders, whoever the elders discern is making a credible profession of those things. There's nothing to discredit the sincerity of what they're saying. Again, Edwards quote. The question is not whether Christ has made converting grace or piety itself the condition or rule of his peoples admitting any to the privileges of members in full communion with them. It is the credible profession and visibility of these things that is the church's rule in this case. In the same manner, this is a key illustration here, he says in the same manner as some kind of repentance is the qualification in one that has been suspended, for being grossly scandalous in order to his coming to the Lord's Supper, end quote. So he's saying that the elders are not to pass judgment on whether the person's saved, but on whether their profession of saving faith is outwardly credible. So the elders aren't giving a verdict on the human heart, but they're just looking at the fruit to see that it corresponds to the profession. So they're not trying to keep out people that are unconverted, they're trying to keep out people that... Don't give the visible evidence of a credible profession of true faith in Christ. The important distinction here. And because people are going to slander him and say, Oh, his position is the elders or the, the ministers, whoever has to, has to judge that you're converted. No, you have to profess it and they judge that it's outwardly credible. That's what he's saying. In the same way, uh, you can't get away from the fruit of repentance because what if somebody is under suspension or excommunication, how are the elders going to determine, according to the rule of Christ in Matthew 18, if the person has repented? How are they going to know? Okay, they can't judge the human heart. They don't have a spiritual CAT scan x-ray machine, but they look at the fruit of repentance. So if they can look at the fruit of repentance to restore someone to the Lord's table from discipline, why can't they look at the fruit of repentance in a membership interview? Right? And, and Edwards, his arguments are just so boom. He just strikes at the heart of his opponents with these kinds of uh, arguments. Again, Edwards, quote, by Christian judgment, I intend something further than a kind of negative charity or a kind of, sorry, than a kind of mere negative charity, implying that we forbear to censure and condemn a man because we do not know, but he may be godly, and therefore forbear to proceed on the foot of such a censure or judgment in our treatment of him, as we would kindly entertain a stranger, not knowing, but in so appearance, sorry, not knowing, but in so doing, we entertain an angel or precious saint of God. But I mean a positive judgment. So he's saying not a mere negative judgment where, you know, you help some random person, who knows, it may be an angel. Uh, who knows, this may be a Christian. Come to the Lord's table, okay? Okay. This is the basis for open communion in many churches. They don't examine people at all. They, they don't examine whether the person is in good standing in their congregation in terms of the, the shepherds over them. They don't examine people. They just say, if if you feel the need to come to the table and you think you're worthy, just come forward. There's no examination. Well, he's saying it's not a mere negative charity. Who knows, but this person saved. Welcome to church membership. Come to the table. But he's saying... There needs to be, uh, picking up the quote, but I mean a positive judgment founded on some positive appearance or visibly some outward manifestations that ordinarily render the thing probable. There's a difference between suspending our judgment or forbearing to condemn or having some hope that possibly the thing may be so and so hoping the best and a positive judgment in favor of a person. So it's not just hoping the best, there's some outward evidence. He continues, For having some hope only implies that a man is not in utter despair of a thing, though his prevailing opinion may be otherwise, or he may suspend his opinion. Though we cannot know, a man believes that Jesus is the Messiah, yet we expect some positive manifestation of visibility of it to be a ground of our charitable judgment. So I suppose the case is here, end quote. So now he, he's not looking for some miraculous light from heaven to shine down or a, a visible halo above the person's head, but he's saying there should be an examination to hear their profession, ask some questions, and examine something about their life if you're to receive them to church membership. And when we allow people to commune with us from other congregations with whom we have an affiliation, the, 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 the trust factor extends to the churches that interviewed those people in their local church. That's why we do that, because we assume this process has happened, and then with our with our members, this process happens here, and so you have uh, this process taking place across the board. Quote Edwards: It is not my design to affirm that all who are regularly admitted as members of the visible church in complete standing ought to believe, ought to be believed to be godly or gracious persons when taken collectively, or considered in the gross by the judgment of any person or society. So he's saying, just because everybody at the Lord's table has been examined to the satisfaction of the biblical standard, that does not mean that it's impossible that there could be an unconverted person at the Lord's table. That does not mean that we assume that the communicant membership of the church is in 100% correspondence to the invisible church, and so, of course, we continue, as Paul does, to exhort uh, credibly professing believers to make their calling and election sure. So he's saying, just because we followed the, the pattern in each case and each person we interviewed, we think it's probable, charitably, this is a believer. That doesn't mean we can just say, therefore, it's 100%. He goes on, quote, This may not be, that you know, may not be 100% and yet each person taken singly may visibly be a gracious person to the eye of the judgment of Christians in general. These two are not the same thing, but vastly diverse. And the latter, the sense of all-inclusive perfection here, or sorry, the, the latter being the outward fruit individually, the latter may be, and yet not the former, So you may see fruit individually, but it may be the case that if you take the whole bulk of the church, there may be a Judas among them. He goes on, hence, it by no means implies a pretense of any scheme that shall be effectual to keep all hypocrites out of the church and for the establishing in that sense of a pure church, end quote. He has been slandered, the Cambridge platform has been slandered as saying that this will purify the church and keep all hypocrites out of the church. Edwards says nothing could be further from the truth. We're just following the pattern in each individual case. We're not saying there's no Judas among God's people at the table. Edwards again, quote, "...when it is said those who are admitted, etc., ought to be by profession godly or gracious persons, it is not meant that they should merely profess or say that they are converted or are gracious persons, that they know so." or think so. So again, he's saying people are misrepresenting him as saying, oh, all you got to do is sit down in the chair and tell the the interviewer, I believe I'm saved. I believe I'm converted. He's saying, no, no, no. That's that's simplistic. He says, but that they profess the great things wherein Christian piety consists vis-a-vis a supreme respect to God, faith in Christ, etc., So the interview does not revolve around them telling their personal experience and all these things. The interview revolves around them uh, professing to to love God, to believe in Christ, and here's, here's how I walk with God, here's my relationship with Christ, here's how I came to faith. Just basic, basic, 101 type stuff. Jesus, when he interviews Peter for restoration, says, lovest thou me? He doesn't say, Peter, do you have a true regenerate heart of love? No, he just says, do you love me? And elders are going to ask people, do you believe in Christ? Tell us about that. Do you love Christ? Tell us about that. Do you have a relationship with Christ? Do you, do you love him? So, so Edwards is, is clarifying his position here. Again, quote, and as to the ecclesiastical rule now in question of admission to sacraments on a profession of godliness when attended with requisite circumstances. Although, in particular instances, it may be an occasion of some tender-hearted Christians abstaining and some presumptuous sinners being admitted. So people are saying, look Edwards, the person who's struggling and doubting whether they're a godly or gracious person is going to be kept out. And the person who's presumptuous and saying, look at me, I'm regenerate, they're going to be let in. Your whole system is is flawed. And here's what he says uh, about that abuse of the system. Quote, yet that does not hinder but that a proper visibility of holiness to the eye of reason or a probability of it in the judgment of rational Christian charity may be maintained as a proper qualification of candidates for admission for it ought to be attended with an honest and sober character and with evidences of good doctrinal knowledge and with all proper careful and diligent instructions of a prudent pastor. So he says the people doing the interview are going to use prudence and wisdom and be gracious to people and and seek to identify any abuse of the system. I mean, that's, that, that's how this sort of thing works. He goes on, and he may and ought to inquire particularly into the experiences of the souls committed to his care and charge, that he may be under the best advantages to instruct and advise them for their self-examination, to be helpers of their joy and promoters of their salvation. So the the pastor, the under-shepherds, are to help people work through the question of their assurance, examining themselves so that they can personally find assurance, they can make their calling and election sure. Sure. It's not because the elders or the pastor says a person's saved or not. It's because they're helping the person biblically to work through the question. I mean, again, this is pastoral ministry, shepherding ministry 101. He goes on, however, finally, not any pretended extraordinary skill of his, the pastor, in discerning the heart, but the person's own serious profession concerning what he finds in his own soul after he has been well instructed must regulate the public conduct with respect to Him, where there is no other external, visible thing to contradict and overrule it. So it really hinges mostly on the person's profession, and you're helping them to to understand self-examination, and they make their profession, and as long as there's no external, visible thing that contradicts that profession, the elders are going to accept it. So, So you can see here with Edwards, the bar is not uh, extraordinarily high. It's a very simple biblical threshold. He goes on, and a serious profession of godliness under these circumstances carries in it a visibility to the eye of the church's rational and Christian judgment. End quote. Uh, Edwards also addresses the issue of what if the person doing the interview has a personal issue they they you know the person's explanation of their testimony of faith and and their beliefs and and the way they came to faith in christ let's say the pastor or one of the elders uh is it just rubs them the wrong way okay Uh, is is this going to be a source of ecclesiastical tyranny where the church leaders are going to say well i didn't get a warm fuzzy feeling in this uh, interview so uh you're you're excluded from the table listen to what edward says quote This is not in your handout. I say in the eye of the church's Christian judgment because it is properly a visibility to the eye of the public charity and not of a private judgment that gives a person a right to be received as a visible saint by the public. If anyone known to be of good understanding in the doctrines of Christianity and particularly those doctrines that teach the grand condition of salvation and the nature of true saving religion and publicly and seriously profess the great and main things wherein the essence of true religion or godliness consists and their conversation, that is their lifestyle, is agreeable. This justly recommends them to the good opinion of the public whatever suspicions and fears any particular person, either the minister or some other, may entertain from what he in particular has observed, perhaps from the manner of his expressing himself in giving an account of his experiences or an obscurity in the order and method of his experiences, etc. The minister in receiving him to the communion of the church is to act as a public officer and in behalf of the public society and not merely for himself and therefore is to be governed in acting by a proper visibility of godliness in the eye of the public. End quote. So Edwards is... is really bending over backwards to clarify this is not the elders saying you're saved you're not they're looking at the person's profession they're looking for things that would invalidate that potentially they're examining with charity and discernment and if 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 there's nothing of substance that's visible that can be demonstrated they're not going to invalidate the testimony And they're not going to require people to recount their conversion story according to every single jot and tittle of every Puritan theological treatise on that subject. So this is what Edwards was advocating and the congregation overwhelmingly voted him out. What does that tell you about the halfway covenanters that ruled that congregation? It it tells you something about how how many unconverted people must have been in there because that's a very reasonable standard for participation in the Lord's Supper. Now, very briefly, let me just uh, echo the fact that this is the position of the Reformed Presbyterian Church historically. I'm not going to go back to the days of the Covenanters, but at the very least, if you look at William Symington's classic work, Messiah the Prince, Listen to what he says under uh, point number three in your outline. This is outline section six, quotation A, but then subsection three. Because he gives a number of qualifications for communicant membership. He says intelligent orthodoxy. He says submission to the ordinances of Christ. You could just look on the inside of your uh, front cover of your Psalter at our Covenant of Communicant Membership. It's basically all the stuff that's in there. But intelligent orthodoxy, submission to Christ's ordinances, consistent behavior, okay? But also, he says, apparent religious experience. Symington, quote, apparent religious experience is also indispensable. Apparent, we say, because of the reality man is incompetent to judge. Appearances are all that is within the sphere of his cognizance. Whoever seeks admission into the fellowship of the Christian church professes to have experienced something of the power of religion on his heart. And although the rulers in the church may not be able to determine whether this profession be real, they are entitled to determine whether it be made and to apply to it certain criteria of judgment. They may not be fit in any case to pronounce absolutely on the presence of true religion in the soul, nor in every case to decide on its absence." yet the appearances of it being present or absent may be in general so marked as to form a sufficient guide in receiving or refusing persons applying for admission. Again, this is for communion. He goes on, an individual who knows nothing of the nature of Christian experience or the marks by which it is distinguished is, of course, inadmissible, nor is it a bare pretension to religious experiences or every plausible story of feelings and ecstasies So it's not mystical and subjective, that can form a sufficient ground for admitting to ecclesiastical privileges. Credible evidences of the experimental or experiential power of religion are to be required, and nothing but what is rational, sober, consistent, and holy can ever constitute credible evidence. End quote. Uh, And you see this reflected uh, section 7 in our own Constitution, the RPCNA, in addition to its affirmation of the Westminster Standards, agrees in principle with the views of Edwards and Symington in its Directory for Church Government, Directory for Church Government, Chapter One, Section Four. Quote: Candidates for communicant membership shall be examined by the session in constituted court. The examination shall seek to bring out the degree of the candidate's knowledge of divine truth, his personal sense of sin and the need of salvation and his knowledge of and willing acceptance of the covenant of church membership. It goes on, no one should be admitted who is ignorant of the plan of salvation or, gives, or who gives no credible evidence of having been born again, end quote. And you can see the chart from our previous lecture, uh, which helps to show some of the scripture passages that form the basis of that passage. Of that uh, policy. Now, halfway covenant mythology, Federal Vision halfway scholarship. Steve Wilkins is a CREC pastor well known for his involvement in the Federal Vision controversy. Since 1989, Reverend Wilkins has served as pastor of the Auburn Avenue Presbyterian Church in Monroe, Louisiana, uh, which uh, had a bit of a facelift in recent years. They were renamed Church of the Redeemer and relocated to the other side of Monroe in 2018. So they no longer bear the name of that famous conference that started the Federal Vision. Now they are the Church of the Redeemer. This is the congregation which hosted the annual Auburn Avenue Pastors Conference where the Federal Vision controversy broke out in January of 2002 and this is where Rich Lusk initially served as an associate pastor. Wilkins has vigorously promoted the Federal Vision from its inception, speaking regularly at the Auburn Avenue Pastors Conference, contributing to the Knox Colloquium on the Federal Vision, 2003, co-editing the book Federal Vision, 2005, and signing the Federal Vision Joint Statement, 2007. In 2005, Wilkins had to respond to judicial charges in the PCA but the, the Louisiana Presbytery in response to those charges exonerated Wilkins and his Federal Vision teachings and that Presbytery was later indicted by the PCA's standing judicial committee in 2007 quote for failing to find a strong presumption of guilt end quote against Wilkins. So the Presbytery got dinged for this at the General Assembly of the PCA for letting Wilkins and his teachings, essentially letting them go, letting them slide. After this, Wilkins' congregation swiftly left the PCA for the CREC in January of 2008, where it remains to this day. So once again, the CREC is uh, a refuge for federal visionist pastors. In 1999... You may may be familiar with Wilkins in um, in 1999. He admirably represented the Southern perspective in a debate with Christian author and historian Peter Marshall entitled, The Great Civil War Debate. That's uh, available through American Vision. I think it's free on YouTube. Uh, So Wilkins represented the South. He did a pretty good job. And he authored several books throughout his writing career including Call of Duty, The Sterling Nobility of Robert E. Lee, All Things for Good, The Steadfast Fidelity of Stonewall Jackson, and Southern Slavery as It Was, a pamphlet which he co-authored with Douglas Wilson. And uh, that pamphlet has been accused of plagiarism, and my understanding is that Wilson later acknowledged that plagiarism as an honest mistake. Arguably, Wilkins' most influential contribution to the federal vision is his lecture at the original Auburn Avenue Pastors Conference in 2002, entitled The Legacy of the Halfway Covenant, in which he attacks and ridicules the New England Puritans for serving communion only to those who make a credible profession of their faith in Christ, over against Wilkins' own position of paedo-communion, which is permitted in the CREC. Now, There are seven common myths about the Halfway Covenant uh, that Wilkins promotes in this lecture, The Legacy of the Halfway Covenant. Let's look at the first one. Uh, We'll we'll see how far we can get here. But myth number one I've summarized each myth. These are not direct quotations until we get to the subpoints. But myth number one is the idea that the Halfway Covenant reflected the New England Puritans' desire to limit the church, that is, the covenant membership to the elect only. Wilkins claims that the halfway covenant reflected the New England Puritans' desire to limit church membership to the elect only. Quote, Wilkins says, the Puritans believed it was their duty to make the visible church conform as closely as possible to the invisible church. End quote. Again, he writes, the covenant of grace to them existed between God and the elect only. Those who have saving faith the church must be a reflection, then, of the covenant of grace. It should only consist of the elect. And the elect can be identified as the possessors of saving faith. And the church should only, therefore, consist of those who are regenerate and born again. End quote. Now, we've seen in the Cambridge platform that this is utterly false. We've seen that in Edward's writings, which he lumps with the Puritans when he's criticizing them here, it's utterly false. First of all, they held to infant baptism. And they acknowledged that their, infant, their children baptized in infancy are church members. The halfway covenant that Wilkins is so upset about acknowledged that these baptized, non-professing, presumably unconverted people were church members to the point where they would baptize their children. So they did not believe that the church was only the elect or that they should throw out of the church people they did not believe to show signs of conversion they actually kept those people in and then went so far as to extend the privilege of baptizing their children. So that's a myth. Myth number two. By the the way, these Puritans affirmed the covenant theology of the Westminster Standards, which says that the visible church and the covenant community extends beyond the elect. So this is is utterly false. Uh, Halfway scholarship concerning the halfway covenant. Secondly, Myth number two, the New England Puritans' definition of a credible profession of saving faith was unreasonable and unbiblical, says Wilkins, especially with respect to baptized covenant children. He says this, quote, the Puritans came to believe that a mere profession of faith in the truth of the gospel and faithfulness of life were not sufficient to secure the purity of the church. So they felt something more was needed than that, and thus they added the requirement of a necessity to demonstrate the presence of true saving faith in the applicants for admission to membership, end quote. He goes on, they distinguished, you see then, between a profession of faith and the doctrines of the gospel, they call that merely a general or historical faith, from saving faith, which was the result of a climactic conversion experience after a season of conviction, and going through various stages of conviction, alienation, doubt, struggle, all sorts of things, and then coming to a semi-assurance, end quote. We've seen that, they, that the Puritans forbade and prohibited a severe examination. We've seen that Edwards, in defending that position, says there is not an elaborate series of steps that you have to conform to in sharing your personal testimony of faith. This is inaccurate, if not slanderous. Again, Wilkins, quote, by the 1630s, there had been two generations of Puritan theologians who had established a pattern of conversion which was deemed to be the way, generally speaking, that men come to faith. This is the way it happens. And so you had better follow this pattern of experience in order to be assured that you had actually saving faith, not some form of spurious faith, end quote. No, Edwards and the Cambridge Platform simply said, profess to believe and repent, and have a credibly corresponding lifestyle, and and even the the smoking flax and the bruised reed will be accepted. So this is this is slanderous. Uh, he then says, "Quote now William Perkins, one of the most influential of the Puritan divines, had already by the 1630s no less than ten stages by which a man should go through." in order to arrive at saving faith, end quote. So it's interesting that William Perkins, by the 1630s, had identified these things. He died in 1602. So, I mean, I'm sure by 1630s, he knew a lot of stuff, uh, you know, straight from the lips of Christ. I I mean, this is the kind of nonsense. You you cannot trust these Federal Vision, quote-unquote, scholars. They have no idea what they're talking about. But in any event, William Perkins had his 10 steps or stages. We looked at that last time. It's basically hear the gospel, be convicted of your sin, believe on Christ, and seek to live a godly life. I mean, it, it's it's as we said, it's vanilla. But um, anyway, he he goes on to uh, criticize the 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 use of Perkins' ten steps as as a sort of rubric for these examinations, and he says it's especially a problem with children. Quote: It was assumed that. Perkins' 10 step process is the common experience of covenant children. Now, even if this 10 step process is the common experience of adult converts, that still doesn't follow that it would be the common experience of covenant children of adult Christians. Okay, so he's saying, well, you you know, you come to faith differently if you come to faith from outside the church as an adult convert versus a child of a believer a baptized covenant child. It's it's apples and oranges according to Wilkins. He says, why would it be the same? Why would it be? He says, children are growing up in covenant. Listen to Wilkins. Listen to the Federal Vision view of how we should view our children. They grow up believing what you have taught them. And if you teach them the Bible and the gospel and tell them about the Lord Jesus, they're going to believe it. And they're going to love it. That's the way God made them. And thanks be to God that He made them that way. And there's nothing incredible or doubtful about them doing that. That's exactly what they should do. It's in fact right that they should do that. But they won't go through these steps if they're that way. The assumption was that they must go through these things because they are sinners. And sinners, to be converted, must follow the same road. And I'm saying that's not right. But that's what they believed, that's what they assumed, end quote. So let me just read, let me read the end of this quote here. This is uh, the Federal Vision, Steve Wilkins' view of covenant children. The assumption was that these covenant children must go through these things, that is, hearing the word, conviction of sin, believing on Christ, you know... (laughs) Uh, th- th- this basic outline of, of how people are converted. They have to go through that process of conviction and, and faith and repentance. They have to go through these things, he says, because they are sinners. And sinners to be converted must follow the same road. So he's saying that's the position of the Puritans. And Wilkins says, I'm saying that's not right. That is frightening. Uh, our, our covenant children are Sinners. And to be converted, they need to hear the gospel and believe and respond in a life of gratitude. But he's saying that's not right. Apparently covenant children are just made that way, right? They're just He, he says that uh, God has just made them this way. And uh, if you just tell them certain things, they'll robotically believe it or whatever mechanically it sounds like because apparently they don't have personal conviction of sin according to the, the Perkins model. Anyway... This is a huge problem. And this is, we're starting to get into some of the aspects of the federal vision that are utterly inconsistent with anything along the lines of experimental or experiential religion. They, they decry that. The idea is covenant children, they're regenerate from their baptism, or we at least presume that they are. We just teach and catechize them and they need not have any personal experience of the conviction of sin. Now, I'm not saying, and Perkins isn't saying, and Edwards isn't saying, that the outward experience of a covenant child coming to faith is going to be exactly the same as someone who was outside the church being converted and brought into the church. They're not saying that, but if you look back to Edwards' steps earlier in the outline and the footnote, essentially... The substance is going to be there they're going to hear the word be convicted of their sin put their trust in Christ and so that is right Wilkins says it's not right it is right Uh, that's biblical myth number three the New England Puritans encourage professing Christians to doubt their salvation and raise suspicions concerning anyone who claimed to have full assurance listen to Wilkins quote commonly the Puritan practice of self-examination did not end in full assurance so that assurance was a rather elusive thing as you can imagine. It came and went as it pleased, sometimes for no apparent reason. You read some of the period of diaries and they talk about this being a sunny day. They say because the sun of God's grace is shining upon them and they have assurance. If a man doubts of his assurance, that was considered sound assurance. If you had no doubts about your assurance, that was clearly false and presumptuous. Therefore, if you didn't go through some of these heart struggles before coming to assurance, you were highly suspect. So saving faith strangely came to be marked by nothing so much as doubt, end quote. We've seen that's not the case. Edward says that the under shepherds of the church should be meeting with these people, helping them through self-examination, helping to be, as he says, helpers of their joy, helping them to make their calling and election sure, uh, not suspiciously shooting them down, but trying to enable them biblically, encouraging them so that they can grow in their assurance of salvation. So this is utterly false. Uh, Myth number four. The halfway covenanters profess to have saving faith in Christ. The halfway covenanters non-professing adult baptized members, Uh, he says uh, these people profess to be Christians. Quote, here you have a whole group of children, and I'm sure it's like any congregation. Some of them went out and decided they wanted to be the hell's angels of that day, and so they were really in big trouble with the church and got all kinds of discipline and all the rest. But you see, the majority of them were not that way. The majority of the children grew up just like you would expect them to grow up. They grew up, they didn't renounce the faith, they didn't forsake the church, they were faithful in worship, they lived obedient lives externally, they were not scandalous, but they never had the experience that their parents said must be true for a sinner to become a Christian. They believed that they were uh, what they were told, believed the Bible, they professed faith in Christ and in his atonement and in his forgiveness, they embraced the orthodox faith as they understood it, They lived obedient lives. They didn't renounce the gospel. They attended worship faithfully. There was no reason to bring rebuke to them in the least, but they didn't have this experience, and so they were never allowed to the table. End quote. He goes on, you can't bring discipline against them. They're attending church. You can't bring discipline against them for heresy. They acknowledge everything. They even profess to believe that Christ is their Savior. End quote. So, according to Wilkins... Uh, these people are claiming Jesus has saved them. They're claiming to be converted. They're claiming to have true saving faith. It's unclear where Wilkins has gotten this information because it's very clear from the writings of Edwards and the writings of his grandfather that these people were not claiming to be converted. In fact, Solomon Stoddard was saying, let's bring them to the table so that they will be converted, right? I was converted here. This is a great place to be converted. So let's bring these people as long as they're outwardly have their ducks in a row, have everything in order, bring them to the table and uh, they'll be converted. That was the debate. Is the Lord's Supper a converting ordinance so that we should invite unconverted people to the table? You can look in your outline footnote 2, footnotes 7 through 10. This is the position of Edmund Morgan, whom Wilkins cites as having given perhaps the best analysis of the whole question. And we saw last time, and you'll see in your outline these quotes from Morgan, where it's clear, the people that the Puritans wanted to keep from the table had no love for God in their hearts. Edwards is clear in his writings. These are people who do not claim to be converted. They're just looking for outward ecclesiastical social privileges. And again, Stoddard is clear. He didn't think they were converted either. So they're not professing to be converted. The people wanting them at the table don't say they're converted, but apparently Steve Wilkins says they are. But you see how the misrepresentation of church history is, is apparent here. It's a myth. Fifthly, myth number five. The, the halfway covenant is equivalent in principle to the Presbyterian practice of credo communion. The Presbyterian practice in our church and across the board is that we require a profession of faith to come to the table, credo communion. And he's saying the halfway covenant is in principle equivalent to that practice. And you can look at the quotes here. He repeatedly says, that what the halfway covenant is doing is just what they're doing in the PCA where they require our children to profess faith before they come to the table. They're not allowed to just come to the table as a one and a half year old infant as, as uh, happens in Doug Wilson's church and, and now happens in Steve Wilkins' church, I assume. So he, he tries to make this connection that modern day Presbyterians like ourselves and like the PCA are implementing the halfway covenant. Because our children are halfway members, they can't come to the Lord's table, but they're still members. I'm not going to read these quotes. You can read them for yourself. But this is just utter nonsense. The halfway covenant was enacted to baptize the children of non-professing adult members. Does the PCA baptize the children of non-professing adult members? No. Does the RPCNA baptize the children of non-professing adult members. No. Across the board, virtually nobody, there's some Scottish Presbyterians that do this, but virtually nobody in American Presbyterianism has adopted the halfway covenant. We baptize the children of those who credibly profess Christ. So this, this entire uh, framework that he's setting up is completely erroneous. Myth number six. According to Wilkins, Solomon Stoddard opposed the halfway covenant on the same grounds that federal visionists oppose credo communion. Solomon Stoddard opposed the halfway covenant, he says, on the same grounds that federal visionists oppose credo communion. Listen to Wilkins. Quote, Solomon Stoddard said this, meaning the halfway covenant, this is wrong. Solomon Stoddard said, we have no basis for this. You're wrong. The practice is wrong. Children should be admitted to the table by virtue of their baptism. Solomon Stoddard never said that. He never said children should come to the table by virtue of their baptism. That would be Pedo communion Stoddard just lowered the bar of what a profession of faith is that you don't actually have to claim to be a true converted Christian. Okay? But Solomon Stoddard never said that baptized infants should be given the elements of communion so again this is just a myth he goes on and as they're admitted to the table then the lord's supper will bring them to a more full experience of faith solomon stoddard never said that he said they're unconverted and it will bring them from darkness to light not a more full experience of faith so that's wrong okay he acknowledges this quote and he called it a converting ordinance now you may quarrel with solomon stoddard's solution a bit But he opposed what was wrong, and he was right to oppose what was wrong. Jonathan Edwards, his grandson, repudiated Solomon Stoddard, his grandfather, and then established us firmly in the way of the halfway covenant, end quote. Many problems here. Number one, Stoddard's against the halfway covenant because he thinks it keeps back unconverted people from the table that need to come and be converted. Whereas the federal vision opposes the halfway covenant, because it keeps back infants whom they assume are converted and regenerate from the table, you see. So they're actually opposite reasons. Stoddard says, bring, bring these people to the table because they're unconverted. Uh, Federal Vision says, bring children to the table because we think they're, we, they are converted, they are regenerate by their baptism. Also, Edwards did not promote the halfway covenant. Edwards was against the halfway covenant. And you can see the footnotes there. So it's unclear what Wilkins is even talking about. Edwards was not in favor of baptizing the children of halfway covenanters. He opposed the halfway covenant. And he opposed Solomon Stoddard's open communion practice. And just finishing up here, myth number seven. In opposing Stoddard, Edwards and the old school Cambridge platform Puritans largely provoked the apostasy, liberalism, and secularization of New England According to Wilkins, it's the Puritans' fault that New England is atheistic to this day. Interestingly, quote number three, he relies on the scholarship of Edmund Morgan, uh, who provides, quote, the best analysis of this whole phenomenon in his book, Visible Saints. So we're relying on an atheist to tell us the explanation for, for how, you know, an atheist who hates the Puritans is going to help us gain an insight into the Puritans. Uh laughable. But I I just want you to hear what he says in quote number two. You can read quote number one for yourself. It's just a, a horrible slander on the Puritans, but we'll finish with quote number two. Listen to his analysis. Quote, it wasn't very long before these men, these children grew up and said, you know, this is all a psychological stupid thing. That's exactly how he worded that. Mom and dad and granddaddy, you don't know what you're talking about. We didn't go through the experience. All right, if we're not Christians, fine. Have it. It's ridiculous. And they rejected it all. And in a way, what else could they have done? In a sense, you see, you can't endorse their rejecting the gospel, but what would you have done in such a situation? This opened the door to transcendentalism, to existentialism, which provoked revivalism. Federal visionists, hate revival by the way it's all revivalism they oppose piety it's all pietism but he goes on and then you have uh, you had things not getting better but getting worse the calvinists in the first great awakening give us then this standard and establish it as the basis upon which we can distinguish true converts from false they make things in a sense worse end quote so federal vision is strongly opposed to the great awakening strongly opposed to experiential christianity Strongly opposed to a very basic and no-nonsense approach to communicant interviews. They, they, they're opposed to revival. They call it revivalism. This is what you're getting into with the federal vision. It is, I, I would say at least, if not fully, it's, it's borderline denying the power of godliness. Let's pray. Gracious God, we pray that you would instruct us And cause us to walk in the light of Your truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.